is actually the first Thanksgiving message I've ever done, but I thought this would be an interesting subject because there's a, there's a strange psychological phenomenon that happens with abundance, and that is that the more we have, the less thankful we are for what we have. And so I thought, wow, that, you know, there's, there's got to be a, a lesson from the Bible on that in there somewhere. You think? Being thankful? Hmm, when you've got an abundance, and, and this is one of those stories where uh, there's an abundance, and yet there is an attitude of absolute thanklessness. There's a story of two old friends who bumped into each other on the street one day, and one of them looked to be in complete despair. And so his friend said to him, friend, what, what has the world done to you? What, what has happened to you that's made you look so sad? And so his sad friend said, well, let me tell you, three weeks ago, one of my uncles died, and he left me $100,000. And his friend said to him, wow, you that's a lot of money. That's that's a that's a blessing. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm sorry about your uncle and everything, but you know, uh, I'm sure that the the hundred thousand dollars is going to be a blessing to you. And so the man continued. He says, and then two weeks ago, a cousin that I never even knew passed away, and he left me eighty five thousand dollars, free and clear. And again, his friend says, it sounds like you've really been blessed. And he continues, he says, you don't understand, last week my great aunt passed away and she left me a quarter of a million dollars. And the guy is at this point just completely perplexed. He says, well, why are you so down then? And the guy says, because this week, nothing. (laughs) As we near the Thanksgiving holiday... We have a lot to be thankful for. We have much to be thankful for, both on an individual level and on a collective level. We have much. In fact, every single one of us, no exceptions, every single one of us has what you would call an abundance. If you were to compare what we have with the things that people in most other areas of the world have, we have more than an abundance. And there is a very real tendency in each and every one of us to take what we have for granted. Especially when we have plenty. Or especially when we receive plenty on a regular basis. Now the opposite of thankfulness would be thanklessness. And there's nothing that renders us thankless quite as quickly or as effectively as having an entitlement mindset. That is, feeling like you deserve everything that you have. Everything that you have is rightfully yours, and nobody can claim otherwise. And we so easily feel this. We so easily feel as if we we deserve everything that we have. And this is, sadly, a, a mindset that we're seeing spread throughout every single level of our culture today. We're blessed to live in a land of abundance. We're blessed to live in a land where there's more than enough. There's always, however, there's always the temptation to become complacent, to become apathetic toward our blessings, to become ungrateful, to become thankless. There's always the temptation to take what we have for granted, to feel like what we have is rightfully ours, and to become entirely unwilling to feel the need to thank anyone 
for what we have, including God, because you don't thank somebody for what you rightfully deserve, do you? No, you don't. There's a great story from Scripture that we're seeing here today in which we see this principle at work in the lives of God's people, in the lives of the Israelites. God had delivered them from 400 years of slavery. Just to give you just a, a, a quick grasp of how long that is. And this is what I usually do, just to, to give people the, the feel for how long that is. 400 years is longer than America's been a country. So God delivers them from 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians. And he's leading them through the wilderness to the promised land. And there were around a million of these Israelites traveling together, which creates something of a problem. They're in the wilderness where there isn't an abundance of much of anything except dirt and maybe a couple weeds. And yet God provided. He blessed them with everything that they needed to survive, and then some. He gave them, he blessed them with an abundance And one of the things that made survival in the wilderness extremely difficult was the temperature fluctuations. You don't read about this in scripture. We just know this based on modern science and what science has discovered about this region today. Uh, The temperatures get as hot as 120 degrees in the daytime under the day, uh, the, the sun in the day. And it gets as cold as 20 degrees or sometimes even lower at night. Now that's difficult to survive in for five people. For a million people, yeah, it would be impossible. And so God, at night, he led them as a fire, giving them heat. In the daytime, he led them as a cloud, giving them a cool shade. Exodus 13, 21 tells us, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. God continually, continually blessed and continually provided For his people, with everything that they needed, he continually blessed them with an abundance of provisions, including food. See, in the wilderness, there is absolutely no way that you could find enough food to feed a million people. I mean, if if you're if you go out into Washington State, which is has a lot more rain, has a lot more harvest than the wilderness, you'll have trouble just on your own finding enough food for a million people. But with God, nothing. Nothing is impossible. And so God gave them what was known as manna. According to Exodus chapter 16, verse 31, manna looked like coriander seed, tasted like wafers made with honey. And when the Israelites saw it, they asked each other, what is it? And if you were to translate what is it into Hebrew, you get the words manna. Manna, that's what it means. That's where the name comes from. What does, or what is it? That sounds like an Abbott and Costello routine or something, doesn't it? You know, what is it? Manna. Yeah, but what does manna mean? What is it? That's what I'm asking you. You know, you could come up with a total comedy routine out just out of that. Manna could be found uh, along the ground every morning, except on the Sabbath. It was to be collected each day for that day alone. If you tried to store some for yourself, put some in your satchel or your backpack or something, it would get wormy and, uh, and uh, mildewy. Uh, so if a person tried to store some for future needs, it wouldn't be good. And so thus it was impossible for the Israelites to operate independently of God. They needed God every single Day. They couldn't use the manna greedily for, for personal gain. They couldn't store it and sell it when you know, there was no more to be found. 
Miraculously, the manna could be preserved on the sixth day and eaten on the Sabbath, and it was not found on the Sabbath morning. The Israelites had an abundance of manna. They had as much as they could possibly want or need. Now imagine the most delicious food in the world to you, you know, whatever your favorite food is. Can you imagine every day if you went outside your door and there it is. It's just laying in the, in the yard. All you have to do is collect it. Uh, and you can eat as much as you need whenever you needed it. When NASA scientists were looking for the, the food with, uh, with the, the greatest punch per pound, you know, looking for uh, the best superfood, if you will, in the world, they discovered that one of the leading candidates, if not the leading candidate, was a food called quinoa. Uh, anybody, I know you guys have had quinoa. Any, anybody else, have you ever tried quinoa? How good is that stuff, man, by itself? I mean, you, you just want to scarf it down. I mean, no, you don't, because it's kind of bland. Uh, and it, it, it's really not that good. It's very small. Uh, it's bland. Uh, and not only that, but it's not plentiful. It's not abundant. In fact, it only grows naturally in the ground in Bolivia. And by itself, it's not exactly delicious. So it's not abundant. It's not delicious. But it sure packs a punch. Now, oh, and it takes a lot of time to prepare. A lot of time to prepare. uh, If you don't have a rice cooker or something. So God didn't give the Israelites quinoa. He gave them something a lot better than quinoa. He gave them something delicious. Something that would sustain their bodies. Something that would meet the needs that their body had for nutrition. That required very, very, very little preparation. Of course, they mixed it with stuff, but it required very little preparation. He gave them manna. But perhaps even more amazing than God's abundant provision for the Israelites with manna is the fact that the Israelites grew to take it for granted. They grew to absolutely hate manna. In the rebellion of their hearts, the Israelites grew tired of eating manna day in and day out, and they came to regret the fact. This is where you really see the rebellion. They came to regret the fact that God had delivered them from slavery. Now, yeah, they're mixing it with stuff, and it's like, if you guys have heard the Keith Green song, you know, manna burgers, uh, you know, banana bread, you know, there's all kinds of stuff they could have made with it. But they came to detest the manna and longed instead for leeks and onions and garlic uh, from Egypt, where they'd been slaves for so many generations. So we read this, Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 to 6, and then verse 10. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. That's interesting. We'll come back to that. Remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. It's really interesting that As far as they can remember, in in their recollection of events, all of this stuff costs nothing. What costs nothing? 
Nothing. Nothing costs nothing. Uh, our, our perception, this is a picture of how our perception can be so distorted by selfish desires. It's true. The cost was high. The truth is that it cost them everything. It cost them their freedom. It cost them their dignity. How many Israelites were belittled or beaten or insulted or just treated as less than a human being? How many of them were killed in service to the Egyptians? The Egyptians were not nice slave masters. And the fish, as good as they might have been, first of all, it perishes. Secondly, it was not free. It cost them more than money. It cost them more than even their own sweat, blood, and tears. It cost them their lives. It cost them their freedom. It cost them their dignity as people. And as the people are reminiscing about these leeks and onions and garlic from Egypt, they declare that their strength has completely dried up. Why is that? Because they'd rather die than rely on God. It's because they weren't thankful for the abundant blessings that he was giving them. They were anything but thankful for his miraculous provision in what would otherwise be an impossible, impossible situation. Their freedom from slavery meant that they needed to learn how to walk more closely to and depend constantly on God. But they would have rather relied on the Egyptians than on the blessings of God. Now, I understand. You know, I, I get this. When I, when I read this, I think, wow, eating basically the same thing, repackaged and you know, mixed with different things, every day for 40 years, I'm not sure that I could do that. I'm not sure that I could, uh, yeah, uh, be as excited about finding manna after... 25 years as I would be the first day. You know, I I don't know. But I totally get that. But here's the thing. Anything tastes good if you're just hungry enough. If if you've ever gone on like a long distance run, you know this is true. Because you could eat anything after running a a half marathon. And it's delicious. And you eat it, you know, another time when you're, you know, not really full necessarily. But when you're not uh, absolutely starving for something. And it's like, eh, I could do without this. So sure, just. You don't like it? Don't eat it today. You'll like it that much more tomorrow. But what we see here is that they would rather starve to death than rely on God. In an abundance of blessings, they were completely thankless. Now, some will try to dismiss this abundant blessing. They'll, they'll try to give it a natural spin, saying, oh, you know, this wasn't God's provision. They just attributed it to God because these were, you know, these people were, this is the pre-scientific age here. These people don't know what they're talking about. Of course God didn't do it. And they'll say, this must have been some type of bug or some type of fungus uh, that could be found out in the wilderness. But that doesn't explain, A, why we don't find it today. We don't find anything that fits its description today in the entire world. B, why it couldn't be found on the Sabbath day each week. We don't know of any fungus that takes a day off or any bugs that take a day off. C, why the only time it lasted longer than a day was on the sixth day leading into the seventh day. And D, why it completely disappeared after Joshua and the people celebrated the Passover, after they crossed over the Jordan River and entered the Promised Land at Gilgal. Now, this really was a miracle. This really was directly from God. It was an act, a supernatural act of God 
to sustain and provide for his people. This really was God's abundant blessing specifically for them. It was absolutely not a product of nature. But the purpose of the manna was really ultimately to test the faith of the Israelites, to test their willingness to rely on God. The purpose of the manna was to humble them, to teach them that one does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 3 and verse 16. When Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days, he fasted. And he used that quote to refute Satan's suggestion that he turned the bread into or the stones into bread to fill his empty stomach. That's from Matthew chapter four, verse four. Like the Israelites, when they were wandering through the wilderness, Jesus was totally dependent on the provisions of his heavenly Father while he was in the wilderness, undergoing this incredible temptation. Unlike the Israelites, however. Jesus depended on the provisions of God without sinning. So despite their sinful and rebellious protests, God continued to give the Israelites a steady supply of manna for 40 years during their desert wanderings, their wilderness wanderings. Isn't it amazing how faithful God is, even when his people aren't? That's One of the great truths of the Christian faith is that God is constantly faithful to his people, even when we might go through seasons where we are less than faithful. When we get to the sixth chapter of John, we find out what the manna was really all about. Once again, the people have an abundance. The people here in John chapter 6, they have an abundance. Jesus had just fed the 5,000. That's how chapter 6 starts out. Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then we read this. John chapter 6, verses 24 to 27. When the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me. Or you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Because you had all this bread. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. How do you like that for thankfulness? The people show up, Oh, Jesus, when, how often you come here? Sounds like a pickup line in a bar or something, doesn't it? You come here much? They aren't thankful for the fact that Jesus had just fed them with practically nothing. They they just want more food. They weren't even moved by it. They weren't phased by it. They don't care that it was provided for them miraculously. They knew that the the 5,000, they were fed by by five loaves of bread and two fish, which is impossible to feed 5,000 with. There's nobody on the face of the earth who would argue otherwise. And everybody who was there knew that the only food that Jesus had to work with was what this little boy had brought with him. And they weren't even phased by the fact that Jesus used so little to feed so many. They just want more food. They don't want more of Jesus. And so Jesus is essentially trying to point out to these people that their efforts are misdirected. He's, he's being very graceful here. He's showing them your, your efforts are a little bit misdirected. They have a hunger 
And Jesus knows that they have a hunger, but they have a hunger that only Jesus can satisfy, a hunger in their souls, a hunger in their hearts. But they're so preoccupied by the hunger in their stomachs, they're completely ignoring or ignorant of their deeper hunger. See, all these people had followed Jesus all the way across the lake. All the while failing to realize that Jesus was offering them the solution to a deeper hunger, to a deeper need. And here they were, asking yet again to have a perceived need met by him. And so Jesus tells them, you're not here for me, you're here for the food. And then he says, don't work for the food that perishes which, by the way, is exactly what they had been doing. They, they took a boat, or maybe some of them walked all the way around. You know, I don't know. I'm assuming that they all took a boat, because that's a long way to go, all the way across the lake to get food that will satisfy them for an hour, or, or for two hours, or for three hours, or less than a day. And they're completely missing the fact that Jesus could give them something that would satisfy them for all of eternity. Funny, isn't it, by the way, that manna also perished very quickly, within a day, except on the sixth day. So instead, Jesus tells them to work for the food that endures to eternal life, which only Jesus can give. Boy, they're they're really confused now. And so the, the conversation continues. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That you believe in Him whom the Father has sent. Jesus is getting a lot more direct now. You know, He he was kind of, you know, showing them that they were misguided before. Now He's getting a little bit more to the point. They were still seeking just this temporary satisfaction. But Jesus says, If you want to be eternally satisfied, do the work of God. Of God, and so they're like, well, "That sounds good. That, that sounds like a really good deal." What, what's what's the work of God? Believing, believing in Jesus as the Son of the Living God and the Son of Man is the work of God. It's true for us too. That's what He wants from us. He wants us to believe in Him whom the Father sent. This is a black and white, crystal clear message. Jesus is God's permanent provision of eternal satisfaction. Not just a temporary satisfaction, but an eternal satisfaction for his people. And he offers that satisfaction abundantly to anyone who will believe. Know this, friends. Pleasing and satisfying God is not about all the things that you say. It's not about all the things that you do or that you don't do. Pleasing and satisfying God is about who we believe. God is more concerned about who you are trusting for your salvation than he is about the works that you do or the fact that you're saying the right things. You're not pleasing God by doing this or by doing that if there's no faith which precedes those acts. Faith is what pleases God. That's what Hebrews uh, tells us. Faith in the one whom the Father has sent, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're saved for works. We're not saved by works. 
But human nature, this is just our nature in, in this case, is to put the cart before the horse. To say, oh, if, I just, if I'm just a good enough person, God couldn't get mad at me when I stand before him someday. If I'm just good enough, if I just do enough good things, or maybe if I say the right things, so you know, I'll read some liturgy or I'll say the sinner's prayer or whatever, I'll say and I'll do all the right things. Jesus tells them that having faith in him is the work of God. And now the people are are really starting to get confused, maybe even a little bit incensed about what Jesus is saying. So we continue. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? I just have to laugh, (laughs) because he just fed the 5,000. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna, In the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Oh, they said the right thing. They quoted scripture. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread from God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is implying, making an implicit historical connection for them. Back to the years that the Israelites wandered through the wilderness, which these people seem to have understood. They they seem to have caught this much. Jesus is making this historical connection. Okay, we we get that much. We remember when, when God was meeting the physical needs of his people with manna. But what they didn't realize is that that was a foreshadow. It was a, it was a picture of sorts of how God was also able to meet their spiritual needs, which is their deepest need. Don't you love how Jesus, he takes everything they say and he so easily segues into a spiritual discussion. They want to talk about their physical hunger, their, their physical needs, and Jesus just keeps redirecting the conversation back to their spiritual hunger and their spiritual need for himself. It's almost preposterous. It is. It's, it's kind of hilarious that the people would ask what sign Jesus plans on doing for them so that they would believe. Because they just witnessed Jesus feeding 5,000 people with next to nothing. That's a great passage, by the way. This is a great passage that shows us that the hardness of the heart will prevent people from seeing, no matter how obvious it might seem. You can't convince somebody with the most incredible demonstration of the miraculous. As Jesus says later on in this passage, a person has to be drawn to him by the Father before they come to him. But here here they are, they're asking for a sign. And if this isn't a sign, if if feeding the 5,000 isn't a sign, man, I I, I don't know what is. Can, Can you imagine running a stop sign and, you know, a cop sees you and he, he pulls you over and he tells you, you know, hey, you, you just ran a stop sign. And you say, no, show me a real stop sign. That thing back there was as good as nothing. What's he going to do? I mean, you're, you're going to have a ticket. You might end up in an insane asylum. Crazy. But Jesus is patient with these people, which, which I also love because he's, he's been awfully patient with me. He's patient with them. He tells them that the bread that gives eternal life actually isn't literal bread at all. Rather, it's the one whom God has sent down from heaven to give life to the world. And I'm not exactly sure what the people were 
understanding. I'm not exactly sure what they were expecting at this point, but their response in the next verse, verse 34, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And it looks, if you just, if you just look at this and no further, it looks like, oh, they're finally starting to catch on. But the truth is that in the depths of their hearts, they're still not getting it. They're still thinking in terms of physical needs rather than spiritual needs. They still want a sign from Jesus. And so we continue reading. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Skip it down to verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It would be comical if it wasn't so sad. And it's incredibly sad when we wayward, rebellious, hopelessly lost people put our physical needs before our spiritual needs. Jesus is always our greatest need too. He's their greatest need. He's our greatest need. And yet we so often pursue all these things before we pursue him. Jesus is our greatest need, but we're more interested in pleasure in the moment. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy our deepest longings, and yet we're more concerned about our jobs or our personal comfort or the number of zeros in our bank accounts or with being entertained or with just fill in the blank whatever it might be that you pursue before Jesus, because we've all got something to fill in the blank with, don't we? And in the process of pursuing all these other things, it's so easy to take all the things that God has blessed us with, that he's put right in front of our faces. It's so easy to take all these things for granted because there are so many. These things are so abundant, and it's so easy for us to fail to remember to give thanks to the giver of every good gift. The truth is that we're really not all that different from the people in this passage. As I'm laughing at them, I'm really laughing at myself. I'm laughing at my own short-sightedness. How often do we want Jesus to give us just, just one more thing? Just, just one. Just this one last time. How often do we wish that he would give us just one more demonstration of his power? How often do we wish that he would just give us a few more blessings than we already have? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because we fail to see the bigger picture. We fail to remember what he's done for us spiritually, and we focus on physical, felt needs, perceived needs. There are two things that prevent us from feeling as thankful as we should. Number one is taking the blessings that we have for granted. And number two is adopting an attitude of entitlement. None of us, not a single one of us, is entitled to anything from God except judgment and wrath. And it seems to me that these people that Jesus is talking to 
are a great picture of this. They feel entitled. They take Jesus and what he's done for granted. And we do the same thing all the time. Every time we sin, we do the same thing. And the cost of their ignorance is that, that, is that their deeper need for Jesus is going to remain unmet. And it seems to me that after all that they've already seen, after what they've just witnessed and everything else, it was time for them to believe in Him and in the Father who had sent Him. It was time for them to trust in Him alone for their salvation, for their righteousness. It was time for them to develop a sense of gratitude toward God. And friends, it's time for us as well to view him the same way and to show our gratitude to him for the gifts he's already given to us. Now, as we draw near to the Thanksgiving holiday, maybe you're approaching it with a sense of dread. I know there have been many years in the past when I've approached Thanksgiving saying, "Uh, I'm not thankful for much. Maybe you're approaching it with a sense of dread because you're, you're not seeing or you're not exactly sure what you've been blessed with. Maybe you feel like God has neglected you and hasn't blessed you with anything. Maybe the circumstances of your life have caused you to lose sight of just how blessed you really are. Like so many, maybe you've been so overwhelmingly blessed. Maybe you've been so inundated with God's blessings that you don't even recognize them as such anymore. Or maybe they just kind of lost some of that appeal, some lost some of that excitement. Kind of like, you know, when you get a new car and you're so excited and, yeah, after a couple months of driving it, it doesn't look quite so good anymore. How can we find the attitude of gratitude when we just don't feel like showing gratitude? Well, the antithesis of thanksgiving is is basically apathy. How then can we overcome this apathetic, entitled mindset that's just so prevalent in our culture, so prevalent just universally for people, and even in the church? And how do we move more toward a true spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving in a culture that teaches us and that trains us programs us to enter into this rat race and to compete for status and money and power in a world that's filled with unthankful people. Well, I don't pretend to have all the answers, first of all. But if I were to pinpoint a good starting place, I'd say try to focus on what you have rather than wishing for or coveting for what you don't have. Learn to recognize the Lord's many blessings and all of their their many manifestations and give thanks to him, even for the smallest things. And even when it seems impossible to do so, even when you don't really feel like doing it, do you take for granted the fact that you're even alive? The truth is, no matter how bad your life is today, it could be a lot worse. No matter how bad it is for you right now, if you were to go outside these doors and start driving away and get in a car accident, would things be worse? Yeah, they would be. Okay, so things could be a lot worse than they are no matter what your situation is right now. So do you take for granted the fact that you're even alive? Or that you have people who love you in your life? Or that you have clean clothes? Or that you have a bed to sleep on at night? 
Now, this might sound a little bit radical, maybe preposterous, maybe just kind of crazy, but what if we actually tried to be thankful for the things that we don't have? And I'm not talking about a disease, by the way. I'm talking about being thankful that you don't have more money, that you don't have more clothes, that you don't have a bigger house or a nicer car or better behaved children, whatever. Because all of those things, with all of these things, there's a very thin line between us owning those things and those things owning us. So be thankful for what you don't have. Be thankful for your trials. If you're going through trials, we all do. In one season of life or another, we all go through trials. It's in those times that God refines us and teaches us to rely more and more on him. And as a result, it's through, uh, through these trials that we grow the quickest and the closest to the Lord. Be thankful for your shortcomings because they keep you humble, or at least they should. You know, our tendency when we, when we recognize that we've got some kind of shortcoming, our tendency is to kind of just try and skirt around it, you know, put, put it under the rug, try to overcompensate for it, you know, try to, try to hide it, try to mask it somehow. But that's ridiculous, honestly. And it's phony. So cut it out. Don't hide it. Be thankful for it. Be honest about it. And be humbled by it. Be thankful for the challenges that you face. Every single one of us has had challenges at some point or another. We've all had them before, and they've helped to make you who you are today. Challenges are one of those things that God will use to shape us and mold us more and more into the image of his son. See, it's natural, and and it's just easy. It's almost automatic to be thankful for all the good things and the fun things, but fulfillment... And gratitude can come to those who are also able to find it in themselves to be thankful for all these difficult things too, for setbacks, for weaknesses, for hindrances, for trials. As hard as it may seem, and as hard as it it really can be, I would urge you to try to find a way to be thankful for all of your troubles. And they can become your blessings. Friends, we live in a land of abundance. And as we survey the landscape of our own lives, it's my prayer that we will see through new eyes each day the many, many ways that God has provided for us. The many, many ways that he has blessed us. And it's my prayer that we would never, never take God or his blessings for granted, and that we'd never develop a sense of entitlement toward them. As we celebrate Thanksgiving this coming week, may each of us see God for who he truly is, and also see ourselves as who we really are. We are a people who have been blessed beyond measure by a God who loves us so much that he sent his son to save us. And he sustains us. And thus we are also people who need to regularly give thanks to the giver of all good gifts. Not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it does something to your heart.
when you discipline yourself to learn to be thankful for things that you would otherwise take for granted. Not just this week, but every week and every day throughout the year. We've been given the bread of life. We've tasted of it. And we know that it's good. We know this bread. And He has satisfied our deepest need. In light of that fact, may we now truly be thankful to the God who deserves all of our thanksgiving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for being a God who loves us, who loves us so much that you sent your own son to meet our deepest need. And he bore what we deserved, what we were entitled to on the cross. Lord, you, your word tells us that your work is that we would believe in the one you sent. Lord, I pray that for those of us who already believe, help us to believe more. Help us to believe more, Lord. And for any who may be on the fence, may be doubting, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes and open their ears that they would have eyes and ears to see and hear. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your abundant blessings. We thank you for the way that you continue to sustain us today. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings. Teach us to be humble and teach us to have gratitude. And teach us to see you as the giver of every good gift. We glorify you today. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.